Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Welcome back to another Stabby Snippets here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and in just a moment, I'll be joined with Jessica and also a special guest. Today is going to be a little different than our normal format. This is part two of the Alyssa Turney case, and Jessica and I had the opportunity to speak with her sister, Sarah Turney. We'll discuss their childhood and the case more in depth. Along with that, you'll also hear about Sarah's journey for justice for Alyssa. Like we said in part one, we always want to present with the utmost respect for the victims of the cases we cover and their loved ones. So we felt the best way to do this was to present this case with Sarah herself. We would also like to remind you, like we did in part one, that this recording took place prior to the arrest of Michael Turney. Now with that, let's go ahead and get into the episode. So I think one of the biggest things that stands out is the differences in yours and Alyssa's childhoods and like your upbringing. So we kind of wanted you to dive into the difference between how Mike parented the both of you. So like you and her, and then if there was any obvious changes, like looking back from before Alyssa disappeared to after. Like you said, Alyssa and I were treated completely differently. You know, Alyssa was watched over very closely. She had a lot of strict rules that I never had. You know, it was a fight for her to have a boyfriend. He made her sign these con, our father, I should say, made her sign these contracts stating that she wasn't allowed to walk alone like at night, which to me is insane because by the time I was 17, my boyfriend was moving in with me and my father and he gave me a mini fridge and filled it with beer. Um, you know, and when Alyssa would come home drunk one time, it was the end of the world. As well as, you know, Alyssa smoking marijuana. I've been very open about that. You know, Alyssa did smoke and got caught a few times, but, you know, flash forward to again, when I'm a teenager, my father gives me money to buy marijuana. So it's night and day. Um, Even, you know, we had that hidden camera inside of our living room vent, and that was just for Alyssa. After she was gone, I went to my father and said, Hey, take it down. Alyssa's gone. And he said, Yeah. And he took it down immediately. So it's very apparent that everything in terms of the surveillance was pretty much just for her. Like I said, she had so many rules. And I, you know, it's not a joke when I say I like ran the streets. I did whatever I wanted as a child. I went to school whenever I wanted. I, you know, would stay at friends' houses for days. I stayed at my boyfriend's house when I was 15 for like a month. I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. Um, but I didn't see that. You know, when I was younger, I thought the reason that he treated Alyssa that way was because she really needed the guidance. You know, when you grow up in the 90s and you watch uh, Saved by the Bell and all those, you know, 90s sitcoms when your sister comes home drunk or she comes home and gets caught with weed, you think that's the end of the world and you think, you know, it does warrant, yeah, this this large after school special moment where she needs to be spoken to and, you know, change her ways. I, I didn't understand how normal that was as a teenager. Right. And even as I got older, I don't, you know, in my teenage years, I don't think I took the time to reflect on that. I think I did my best to just kind of forget that Alyssa was missing. As crazy as that might sound now, it was just really hard to process. And um, it's not something I really thought about until I was goodness gracious, uh, like so much older. I mean, my mid-20s. Yeah. And that's 
That's definitely an interesting thing because that was one of my things listening to the conversation between you and your father. It seemed like he just didn't acknowledge that you were treated differently. And I remember at one point he said, you were such a good kid. And you were like, hold the phone. I was anything but that. I was running wild and you were the one telling everyone I was innocent. It almost seems like it was reversed, like that Alyssa was like the average get in trouble. And I thought from my perspective, I would think that he as a parent, like if he had nothing to do with Alyssa's disappearance, he would be even harder on you and want to know where you are every minute of every day, especially with his theory that somebody kidnapped her. I would be like, you have to call me between classes. You need to let me know what you're doing. Who are you with? I need an FBI background check on all your friends and their parents. Like his story and his actions are two different things. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, he tells the story about how the union kidnapped and killed his, you know, technically his stepdaughter. And why not go after the biological daughter? You know, if they came for one kid who says they're not coming back for another. So yeah, exactly to your point. Why let me do these things? Why let me be, you know, totally unaccountable for where I'm at when there could be this great danger, according to him. Right. On the day that Alyssa went missing, like what was going through your mind? Yeah, I mean, I was gone all day at a field trip at a water park. So I was like super excited. To be honest, I was thinking about my brand new swimsuit from the Delia's catalog that I got and how I didn't feel weird in it or whatever. It made me feel confident and it was um, super fun for me. And, you know, when he told me Alyssa wasn't answering her phone, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I'm 12. I see them fight all the time. I'm thinking, okay, whatever. Dad's just doing his thing. And when we get back to the house and we find this note, I I think, hey, Alyssa got mad and left. She'll be back. She'll be back this night or, you know, in a week. I never thought that she would be gone that long. And I don't think it was until school started, you know, a few months later that I realized that, you know, maybe there's something weird here. But again, I really, I didn't think about it a lot. And I I hate to say that now. And it really does kind of make me feel like an awful sister. But I just kept thinking, you know, she'll be back. But, you know, as an adult, again, when I can reflect back on that, the instant Alyssa was gone, I slept in her bed every single night. You know, I had this this really terrible night where I mixed vodka and whiskey and I spent the rest of the night crying on the floor begging for Alyssa. I kept asking my friends to go get her. I could cry. I don't think I've ever told this story, but I, I kept begging my friends. I said, go get Alyssa. She'll know what to do. She'll know how to make me feel better. And I just sat there sobbing on our friend's apartment floor. So as much as I like to think it didn't affect me as a teenager, I didn't see it then. I, I can see it now, but it's complicated because I, I just thought she'd be back. Right. And you were also 12. I mean, you'd already gone through a childhood trauma of losing your mom. And then Alyssa assumed that role in your life. So it was like, you know, she was coming back had to be the thing in your head. That's what I kept thinking. Like, she's going to come back, (laughs) you know, when I first heard the story. And then it's like, oh, no, she didn't. And that's that's a lot. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think it was, you know, she'll be back. And then it turned into why did she abandon me? And then I got older and I could see more of the facts. And, you know, I got to where I am today. Mm-hmm. When the the false confession happened with that inmate in Florida, can you kind of talk about how when things shifted where they were beginning to look at her case seriously and then kind of what those interactions and how that process was like for you? 
Sure. I didn't know much of it. My father never really talked to me about Thomas Heimer. I don't think I really knew more about it until the police told me and then, you know, how they ruled him out it was like a non issue with my father. So, you know, when it was all happening, I don't know that I knew. I'm not sure at what point he finally told me, but in 2006, he confessed. And by 2008, there were two detectives assigned to Alyssa's case full time. But yeah, I mean, it was never anything where he came to me and said, oh my goodness, you know, I need to tell you this information. There's this man that is confessing. I remember he did say something, but it was it, it's so weird because it was never like an issue. I, I don't know. I, I know. And I get this question all the time and I wish I could pinpoint it, um, but I just can't. He just never really talked about it. Which is suspicious on its own. You have to think about it too. At this point, by 2008, I am the contact person for the family for the Phoenix Police Department. So it's not as if this isn't something um, he thought I could handle or something that he didn't try to give to me in, in terms of responsibility. So why not have this conversation with me? Why not sit me down logically and just say, hey, this is what happened. We don't know, but I thought you should know, as opposed to like some weird one-off statement that makes it kind of a non-issue. It, it's very strange. No, for sure. And just from like my outside perspective, I'm a parent and just even thinking about anything like that. I mean, I'm sure everybody says this, but it's like I would be acting the opposite, you know, like if I had two siblings, like I had two children, excuse me, that were, you know, had a good relationship and close and everything like I wouldn't want to not tell them something. Of course, you don't want to be like, this is it. This is going to be our answer. But it's like, like you said, at least give you some kind of like, hey, this is what's going on. We'll see what's going to happen the you know the police are looking into it yeah i mean and he did weird things like that like there is this jane doe this poor girl that was burned alive in a dumpster and i've seen her image come up many many times but my father showed my friends this image in the past he posted this picture on people's doors with an you know with like a note saying to call him on the back but he never told me it wasn't until my friends came to me and told me that you know he was saying these things Mm -hmm. it's just so odd the things that he would let me in on and the things that he um i guess sheltered me from or just didn't tell me well, I would definitely, I think you would have questioned that. Be like, why are you showing this image? I mean, that has to be a very graphic image. Yeah, and that's exactly what ended up happening. Of course, my friend tells me and I go right to him and I say, hey, why are you showing this to my friends and not to me? And he's like, I don't think you can handle it. And I'm like, I can't handle that, but I can handle being the point person on Alyssa's case. This doesn't make any sense. I've I've had an, an enormous amount of responsibility since I was a small child. So yeah, I mean, those, those are the things. Um, me and my father would always, you know, fight about things like that. And he he talked the same way you hear in my podcast. He just talks in circles. So it's really hard to make any conclusion about why he did what he did. Right. Right. And one of the things I thought was interesting, like the first episode where you're releasing the tape that you recorded of the conversation, I thought it was really interesting at the beginning of it, you brought up that you were being manipulative and bratty to like get the conversation. And I didn't feel that at all. I felt like you had this frustration, like you're not telling me things. And as someone who had a family member in my life who was abusive, both emotionally and other areas, I know the language that he was using. It triggered me like the second he started talking. Like you mentioned, like I have four jobs and three of them are Alyssa. And there was this big pregnant pause where he didn't say anything. And then he was like, well, I hope something comes from that. And like that's burned into my soul now because I'm like, wait a second. No, as a father, like he adopted her, correct? Correct. So, like, as a father, that's the role he's assumed. Like, even if I thought the cops were looking into me, my immediate thing is, what can I do to help you? Like, I get not going on Dateline or 2020. That could be problematic. 
But and then he's just like, well, thanks for doing that. It's so like manipulative. Like I the more I would listen to him talk to you, it was just like it brought that up of like when I asked my biological father, like, why aren't you in my life? And he made it my fault. Like, well, you see, you're like a puppy that gets brought into my life in times. Then you get taken away and that hurts. So I've just not connected with you because I don't want that hurt. And I'm like, I live two fucking hours from you. I'm accessible. You know, so like I would hear that language that he's using is very like scapegoating. He was the manipulative one in this one, not you. Like I didn't get that from you at all. I totally got that. Like he was trying to manipulate you into like bringing it in, like especially when he said like you told me not to talk to you. My absence in your life is your fault. Yeah, no, and I think you're exactly right. I think when I first started the podcast, I was just extremely scared. I didn't want to come across as this bratty daughter just pointing fingers at her father, which is why I started with this call, because by no means is it the most dynamic, is it the most damning, is it the most suspicious? It is probably the most tame recording of him that kind of exists, and it's terrible. I mean, it's still terrible. But I wanted to start it just very honest and on as equal of of a playing field as possible, if that makes sense. I just didn't want to outright go out here and say, he did this, this is why, listen to this. Um, That was never the aim of the podcast. So I think I was just trying to be really cautious. I mean, if I could go back and do it again, I think I probably wouldn't say that. Um, I've I've learned so much from doing this podcast and people are so forgiving and never see me in, in a terrible light that I might see myself in sometimes. I just, I listened to it when I was editing it and I was like, am I being manipulative? Am I doing what he's doing to me? And so I guess I kind of wanted to out myself before anyone could do it for me, if that makes sense. I'm just naturally too honest and too apologetic also is my problem. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I think you're exactly right. He was extremely manipulative in that conversation. And even at the end, you know, I say, okay, well, if you care so much, please advocate for her. You know, if you do an interview, it will get so much more exposure than a hundred of my interviews. And that's basically when he hangs up on me. Um, So I think that that really speaks for itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We kind of touched on it a little bit with the surveillance and all of that. Like you said, as soon as you were like, I don't want this here, he got rid of it. When exactly were you made aware that this and the phone system was in the house? And what was all of that like for you? So we grew up with the the phone recording system. It had been there since before I was born. I believe it goes back to the 1970s, if I remember correctly. So it's just something we were always aware of. It's not really anything I questioned because that's how I grew up. You know, I, I did know um, that it was, you know, for dad's lawsuits is just kind of what we knew. Our father was extremely litigious. He was suing people left and right. He was always recording people to get that evidence. Um, so I always just kind of chalked it up to that. You know, I, I always saw my father as this kind of ex-military, ex-law enforcement. He has this paranoia. He's always suing people. I always thought that was just kind of his quirkiness, if you will. I thought he was just kind of that older guy that's like that. It wasn't until I got older in my 20s again that I realized how odd it was, you know, and as far as the camera and the vent, he did eventually come to me. Um, I mean, I want to say it couldn't have been more than six months before Alyssa went missing. And he said, you know, look at this and showed me the video of Alyssa getting in a fight with her boyfriend and the video, um, I believe, of her making out with the boy on the couch. I forget which was shown to me first or whatnot. Just it's been so long. But yeah, he eventually did show me one of these videos with Alyssa and I didn't think much of it either. Again, I'm 12 and, you know, my father 
mother did things throughout the years that made me feel like this was normal behavior. You know, for example, one time um, Alyssa was in her bedroom with her friend and it was one of our neighbors and I was, you know, sad that I couldn't be in there. I'm four years younger and she didn't want me in there and I'm an annoying little sister. And so I go tell my dad that I'm sad and I want to be in there with them. And he goes, hey, you should try this. And he gives me, um, you know, what he called bionic ear, which was a listening device I could put underneath her door to hear their conversation. And so I, I do that and I lay there for a few minutes and don't, you know, I'm literally laying underneath like right by her door as if she can't see me pushing something underneath it, thinking I'm super slick. And I listen for a few minutes and then I get bored and, and walk away. But, you know, the, the point is, is that I thought this was normal. I thought this extra surveillance of Alyssa was normal and for her own good. It, it took me way too long to realize how um, wrong it all was. Right. That makes sense. You said that your father showed you the a video of like Alyssa, obviously like her love interest, like her boyfriend. What was your father's like relationship with that? Like you said that she had to like fight to be able to have a boyfriend. Yeah, he would just, you know, bad talk him a lot. And that's the weird part is like he didn't like her seeing him, but he would also come with us on family things. Like he went paintballing with us and he would be at the house every so often, you know, but then he would um, go to the boyfriend and say, Alyssa's cheating on you and say that Alyssa could do better and, you know, say, talk crap even to this day about his truck and go tell the police that he was abusing Alyssa. You know, I remember um, part of that video of her and her boyfriend getting in this fight is, he says Alyssa or that her boyfriend slammed her hand in his door and that was abuse. It was just all these really weird points of contention. I think that he understood that she was 17 and he wasn't able to stop her from having a boyfriend. But even to the point where, you know, the police told me that he was orchestrating these fights between them. So just very, very strange. That is very strange. I mean, even after she was gone, one of the weirdest and saddest parts about this whole relationship with her boyfriend is after Alyssa went missing, um, you know, my father kept in communication with this boyfriend and said, hey, Alyssa went to her aunt's house in California. Here's a phone number you can call to talk to her, knowing that phone number wouldn't go to Alyssa. And this poor guy makes phone calls all summer trying to reach Alyssa, thinking that his girlfriend just left him and um, didn't say anything and, you know, didn't want to be with him and didn't want to talk to him. Like, it's heartbreaking. I I honestly feel so, so bad for her boyfriend. He's also the only person that looked for Alyssa the night she went missing. The only person on this planet that got in a vehicle and went to go look at familiar spots that he knew uh, Alyssa might be in to look for her. Like, it's so sad. Yeah, that's so hard. I mean, like, you were 12, so it's obviously like you couldn't get out and do that. But like, the fact that your father wasn't like banging on every single door... I remember my brother went missing one time. My older brother went missing. And like my parents were like, go tell the neighbors. My brother was in the bathroom refusing to tell people where he was because he didn't want to like do a chore. But like the whole neighborhood was in our driveway when he came out. And like, I'm thinking, how is that not this situation? Like, I'd rather be wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I'd rather think that my daughter ran away and is sitting at a bus stop pouting and having everyone in the world looking for her and feel like, oh, my God everyone knows my drama versus like, you know, she's just not being looked for. Yeah, better safe than sorry. I mean, even one of Alyssa's friends came to me, you know, later on and said, hey, my mom tried to get together a group of people to look for Alyssa. My mom called your dad and said, let's get together a bunch of people in the neighborhood. We're going to look for Alyssa. And my dad, according to her, said, nope, we're good. Uh, I called the police. They're going to handle it while telling everyone else the police wasn't handling it. There's so many strange things. Yeah. So early on, you advocated for your father. 
and you did a lot of work on it. And especially like, I mean, I know you've said in the past, it was like when he was locked up, what was that transition like for you, like in your environment and how did that happen? Sure. From just him being free to being locked up or me changing my mind? You changing your mind or free to locked up, however you want to, you could answer all of it if you'd like. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, when, when he went to prison, I was devastated. I remember getting the call at my brother's house. So imagine my whole family's there. I'm the youngest of six. Our father calls from prison and my brother answers the phone and immediately says, give it to Sarah. There was no question about who was going to talk to our father because they knew how close we were. I mean, he was my only parent and somewhat of my best friend. You know, when you're a teenager and your dad lets you do whatever you want, you see that as friendship. You see that as love. You don't understand that maybe that's not the best way to take care of your child. But yeah, it was so difficult for me when he went to prison. So I worked for him like crazy. I made a website, freemichaelturney.com. I made him a petition. I filed all of his motions for him for his you know bomb case. And I, I worked my tail off for him, very similar to the way I do for Alyssa. As mortifying as it is to say now, that's absolutely true. And then yeah, I mean, when I started to think it was him, I think I was I was pretty worn down at that point. I think he had already kind of proven himself to not be the best parent. You know, at this point he's in prison for 5 years or whatever. And we had just so many different interactions that were just not right. And it just became really clear that he only cared about himself. Um, You know, and I justified that for so long saying, you know, he's probably just so sad to be in prison. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in prison. You know, he's so much older. He used to be a a police officer. He would tell me stories, you know, saying that people leaked this information of him being a police officer while he's in prison. So he's going to get hurt. So I'm scared for him. I'm terrified. I want to help him. I want to, you know, give him all the money I can so he can buy TVs and have all the junk food he can have in prison. I I tried to spoil him. And then, yeah, he just got nastier and nastier. And I... I think I just became more open to the facts of the case. And then, you know, of course, when I confronted him when he was still in prison, I, you know, he called me and I said, This doesn't add up. Why are people saying this? Why didn't you tell me that you took her out of school early that day? There's so many questions. And, you know, kind of like the, the Thomas Heimer situation, there was no, let's sit down and talk about this. Like, no, we need to clear this up. He just avoided the, the topic. You know, every time I'd bring it up, he just skated around it and never had this conversation with me. And then, yeah, I mean, I I remember turning to my boyfriend of 10 years, that same boyfriend that moved in the house with me and my dad that knew my dad since he was, you know, in eighth grade. And I said, do you think my dad did it? And he said, Sarah, everyone thinks your dad did it. And when I went to my brothers, you know, and started saying like, hey, do you think dad could have done this? They they said the same thing. You know, I was the last one. And then all of a sudden it was like, Sarah... (laughs) see what's in front of you. Everyone thinks this. And then, yeah, I started communicating with police um, more, you know, and asking them, what can I do to help you? Who can I talk to? They would give me documents. They would ask me questions. They would ask me to ask other people questions. And then they said, we're, we're going to arrest him. So yeah, I mean, it, it just became really clear. I, I don't think I could ignore it any longer. And I think I just finally became open to it as an adult and not a teenager that felt all this guilt and responsibility to take care of him. You know, I, I graduated from college and I was like, it's not my job anymore, you know? Right. And so he gets out of prison and you have that like meet up with him shortly after he's released. What does that map out to look like? 
Oh, it was insane. So I, I called him and said, hey, you're out of prison now. I want to sit down and, and confront you about Alyssa. I was very honest about why I wanted to speak with him. We ended up having this really long conversation that unfortunately was not recorded, You know, but he laughed about having these plans to murder people at the IBEW. He said really horrendous things. He compared my mother's death to the death of my dog. He just did just all these really horrendous things. So I was kind of ready for him to be shitty in this meeting. Um, I was just ready for it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I met him at a Starbucks. I had a friend wait in the car to make sure I wouldn't die or whatever. And he was watching us from afar. And I was I was not ready. I don't think there's any way to prepare myself. But it's not as if I didn't... I had like this whole list of questions. I had nothing in front of me. I just wanted to kind of feel him out. You know, it was the first time I would speak with him where he wasn't around prison guards, where he didn't think he was being monitored by the police through their phone system. And it was really telling. You know, he started off kind of like, are you here to reconnect? And when I, you know, quickly said, no, no one's here to reconnect with you. Like, that's not what any of your children want. He started getting aggressive and you can hear it. You know, he starts taunting me and saying horrible things. And of course, that's where we get the, um, you know, come to the deathbed and I'll give you all the honest answers you want to hear. And also when he says, I'll agree to confess to everything if the state gives me lethal injection within 10 days of that confession, just, just really, really horrible things. You know, and we went around in circles for about an hour and a half until I just kind of tapped out. And he started saying things like, well, maybe I shouldn't see my kids at all, starting doing that manipulation again. And, you know, it's funny. That conversation is so bittersweet for me. Even when he says, when he offers to confess if they give him lethal injection, I say, okay. You can hear in his voice, he's kind of like, what? Like, he doesn't expect me to really want that. And I'm like, you don't understand my conviction in this case. Like, everyone knows. And if that's what it takes, then that's what I'll have to do. I don't think I was prepared. And it was awful all around and really, really scary. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that audio is something that can be used in court and hopefully help her case. Totally. I mean, it's such an interesting thing to say, like, if they agree to give me lethal injection in 10 days, because just like logistically, the government does not work that fast. Even on its like best of days, like there's no way that would happen. But this is what he does, you know? Yeah, it's almost like, yeah, I'll confess, but here's the most outrageous thing I will I can think of just offer up. And then knowing there's no one can do that for him. It's just like his offer to interview. You know, when the chief of police wrote him a letter and said, we think you have information that could solve your daughter's case. He responded with this six page letter saying that he would only interview if it was live on CNN. He could interview his entire family, the judge in his bomb case, John Walsh from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He wanted Canadian polygraph administrators, just all these really crazy demands. This is what he does. Like, oh, no, no, I'll do it. You just have to comply with, you know, having all these insane demands. I'll do it if Santa Claus is there. You know, that's like literally his tactic. It's I I don't understand. Yeah, my mind is blown. The level of how some people think, like if we make it so big, it's like I'm not not complying. You're just not taking me up on my ridiculous offer. When I heard that, like, oh, yeah, if I get lethal injection in 10 days, it's like, cool, dude. Um, You confess to murder, essentially, like, basically. But it's a technicality, which I don't understand how, like, when you went to the police and they were like, oh, he didn't confess to us. It's like, go arrest him and bring him in, like, on suspicion. My thoughts exactly. Yeah. Oh, that was so disappointing. You know, shattered my world like they do. They make me rage so much when reading and hearing about how they've done all of this. Oh, my God. 
So for those that might not know, I, I would assume most people do, uh, but that don't, what, besides the confession thing, kind of what happened after that? Because that's where we left off in our other part, what they told you you needed to do to try to get action and stuff like that. Sure. So, you know, in 2017, October, I have this conversation with my father. Just a few days later, I go meet with the police and I tell them I have this and they don't listen to it right away. This is when they tell me, um, you know, well, Sarah, we changed our minds. We're not going to arrest your father anymore. We would like a witness or we would like a body. And what we're going to do is start this massive silent witness campaign that will include a billboard on every freeway in Phoenix, all these radio spots, all this stuff. And that didn't happen, you know, and they say, while we're doing this silent witness campaign, we would also encourage you to get as much media as possible to help propel this case forward. So that's when I really started, you know, get all this media. It's really when I started the mission. This is all started by them. So like with that, I mean, we follow you on TikTok. So we know like there's no billboards happened. Like what have they done? What they haven't they done? So for the silent witness campaign, they did run the story in a local article, I believe, like some local news source. However, this local news source got it wrong. Um, They said that like Alyssa left school that day and didn't mention anything about being picked up by our father. So they run they run one article that is incorrect. And then I was interviewed for one radio spot that I think was a few minutes. But other than that, I never heard a single ad on this radio station that they said would be in all these unsold ad slots. There was never a bill board. There was never even a social media post. There was literally nothing uh, on their end about Alyssa. Wow, that's that's insane. So what has that looked like getting media attention? Like, what has that process been for you? Yeah, of course, it's evolved over the years. But, you know, in the beginning, it looked like, you know, creating some type of email template where I said, you know, this is uh, my name is Sarah Turney. I am looking for media attention for my sister, as, you know, suggested by the police. And I would give, you know, like two to three details. I made them very brief, just try to kind of hook people in to learn more. Of course, if you could help me, I would love that. So I would essentially use this email template and just mass spam these to YouTubers and podcasters. Um, This is after national news just turned me down left and right or just never uh, responded. I got no national news. And then I went to all these independent creators. And that's when I started getting traction. Um, You know, a ton of podcasts started picking it up. Some YouTube channels started picking it up. And it became this really large snowball. Of course, on my own, I created all these social media accounts. I created, you know, Justice for Alyssa accounts. And then I, you know, shared the word on my personal accounts. They grew slowly um, and they continued to grow. But it really wasn't until I started making my own content that I saw this case just skyrocket. I never expected that. I never wanted to make my own content, to be totally honest. Um, but I was so encouraged. And once I saw Alyssa's case file for myself, I knew the story had never been told before. And I wanted to tell it in crazy detail. So yeah, it's been a really long, crazy journey. And it's been a lot of trial and error. But I just tried my best to be respectful and create nice email templates that would hook people into wanting to care about Alyssa and her case. And you know, just stress the importance that by sharing this, by doing these podcasts, um, they're actually making a difference in Alyssa's case. And I, I think that's made all the difference. That along with um, just obsessively like responding to all the followers. You know, when I would get messages in the beginning of people saying, I'm rooting for you, I, I would just bawl my eyes out. You know, I'm alone in this media journey. My, my family doesn't wish to join me on it. So when I started seeing support from the online community, um, I was overwhelmed and I felt a great responsibility to respond to each and every 
person that took time out of their day to care about Alyssa, to comment, to write me a message. So all of that in a very long-winded way to say that I just worked my ass off and engaged with my community and they responded. That's awesome. I'm a huge fan of like Heather McDonald. And so when I saw, I was like, oh my gosh, like she's interviewed you. Like that's insane. Like that's, it's not like insane because the story does need to be told. Insane in a good way. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's just like mind blowing. And I was just like, it's so bad that this happened, but I feel like you give hope for a lot of families that are in the same situation as you because Mm -hmm. there are families who like, I mean, they go back to the 80s and they haven't touched their kid's room. They haven't done anything. And they're like, there could still be hope. And I think they may have moved past them coming home at this point, but definitely like getting answers. Yeah, that's the best part, you know, getting those messages of, you know, I heard your story and I was brave enough to speak out about X, Y, and Z. I heard your story and now I want to fight for my missing or murdered loved one, whatever it might be. That's really kept me going. You know, there are days where it's it's hard to be optimistic about Alyssa's case, where I'm just sad about it. You know, I have good days and I have bad days. But when people reach out with messages about how Alyssa's case is affecting them today means everything to me. Because at the end of the day, you know, as much as I obviously want justice for Alyssa, if that doesn't happen, I know that she has affected so many people and just that I can kind of like, I guess, create this legacy for her. She's still doing good in the world. is really cool to me. I think it's a really cool, unexpected benefit of this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw Inside Edition picked up her story too. Yeah. So that's just so amazing. And every time I see it on something, because it was like, I think L or something else too, something else really big. I was like, oh my God, yes, finally, like, come on. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems like TikTok really, really helped with kind of grabbing attention of even more because I know your account over there, like it's just grown so much. Can you kind of tell us about how all of that went and what made you decide to turn to that different form of media? So TikTok has changed everything. I think like the 1 billion people that downloaded it during quarantine, you know, I'm just one of those people. I was like, okay, you know, like I I do social media for a living and I'm like, okay, I better learn about this crazy TikTok thing that all these teenagers are dancing on or whatever. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm bored. It's quarantine. And I download it, like I said, with a billion other people. And um, I find myself at 3 a.m. still watching these videos. I'm like, these are stupid. These are so stupid. I've been on here for 12 hours. This is stupid. And then I'm like, maybe I should try making one of these stupid videos. You know, I'll just I'll just give it a try. You know, I, I've done sillier things for Alyssa's case. Why not? Um, and I make my first video and it goes viral. And I'm like, okay, I have something here. You know what I mean? I, I've done Twitter and Facebook and Instagram forever and ever, and I never saw the same traction. So once people started picking up on it, I realized, you know, this isn't something that's normally on TikTok. You know, you see a lot of true crime on Twitter. You see a lot of true crime on Instagram, Facebook. You see it everywhere, but not on TikTok. Not not a few months ago. So I was like, listen, there's to me to myself. Listen, there's there's room in the market for this. I'm gonna jump on this. I'm gaining traction. So I just started making more videos. I I started learning the algorithms of TikTok. I started seeing, you know, what was trendy, what was popular, and trying to apply that to Alyssa's case. You know, there are certain sounds that will pick up more views. So I, I'm always kind of hunting for for what that best fit looks like, even if it's me turning around to an Ace of Base song or whatever. I, I just try to make it entertaining, and it's kind of this dark humor aspect that really does allow me to express myself. I'm almost at a million. And Alyssa never had national news coverage until TikTok. Once that ball started kind of rolling, that's when everybody picked it up. 
like you said, Elle Magazine, Barstool Sports, uh, Daily Mail did it, NBC News, NBC News, the Gen Z brand, and um, now Inside Edition today. You know, there's there's some other things on the docket as well, but everybody likes this, you know, this angle of this girl with almost a million followers is using TikTok to solve her sister's murder. And I, I think it's just a headline that people really, um, it, that it grabs them. And I'm just so thankful for it. I wish I knew what the secret formula was, but I think I just was able to capture that audience. And thank goodness so many people care about Alyssa that they continue to watch and um, are kind on my post for the most part. Well, that's good. Yeah. I always like worry about things like that when, especially with TikTok. Mm-hmm. I mean, we both have TikTok accounts. Tara and I spend most of our day sending TikToks back and forth to one another. It is totally my fault. She has an addiction to TikTok. Uh, I would just like bombard her. And so finally she downloaded the app. But like I had seen yours before Tara had told me about it. I remember seeing and liking your video and being like, oh, I really hope something happens and like followed. And then Tara's like, we're doing this case. And then she sent me your TikTok. I'm like, oh, I've seen this. And I'm thinking, if I've seen this, like how, like a million people follow you or almost a million people, yeah. that's amazing. Because this, like stories like this need to be told because that's the only way that it's going to pressure law enforcement to step up and do the right thing. I think that's probably scary for them as well because doing the right thing in this case, like they have to be sure because they don't want to try him, like take him to court, try him, and then he get acquitted. Like that's their shot. They'd have to have like a smoking gun with like a confession tape to something. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's extremely nerve wracking. I know that most departments really want these slam dunk cases. And I'm not going to lie and say that this is a thousand percent um, sure in the courts as much as, you know, me and these two detectives believe a thousand percent that our father did this or my father did this. It's always risky going into a trial without a body. It, it always is, but it's not impossible. And her case certainly isn't setting a precedent. I just like keep wanting Nancy Grace to get like the whiff of it because like as soon as Nancy gets it, then like I put that out there. Like if Nancy can start shouting it from the rooftops. So she did. She did. She oh, she, she did, did cover Alyssa's case and she was a total boss and a pleasure to work with. But yeah, no, she was great. She was she was very fired up. I believe that she told someone that Michael Turney should rot in hell. So that was exciting. That is. Because someone knows something. Exactly. It's not like even it's it just it's outside of him as well. Someone knows something and they just need to say it. Yeah, I totally agree. What advice would you give someone who this is like the same thing? They have a missing person in their family or they suspect something. What advice would you give them to get justice and media attention for their loved one? Yeah. I mean, and every case is different, so it's so hard. But, you know, overall, if you are trying to get media attention, I would say, first of all, cooperate with police always. I think a big misconception of me standing up to the police is that I'm not cooperative with them, which is totally untrue. I am extremely professional, extremely um, complied with pretty much everything they've ever asked me to do. And I would love to have a better relationship with them. So I certainly recommend keeping a good relationship as much as you can with the police while still holding them accountable. I'm not saying you, you don't have to do that and get all your documentation. I wish I would have done that years ago. It would have changed so much for me. I relied on outside reporters and sources to get that information for me. And that's what I would go off of. I never got it for myself. So be nice to the police. Um, Just consider them like a customer. If you've ever worked customer service, just customer service the hell out of them is what I like to say. Um, You know, be just so kind that they can't be unkind back to you is, is a really good route I like to take. And yeah, get your documentation. And as far as media, the same rules kind of apply. Be polite. Mm -hmm. 
always approach things with respect. Uh, don't call them out on social media. Um, I learned, you know, they they don't like that. It's never effective. You know, if you have a million people tweet at one person, it's probably just going to annoy them as opposed to make them want to cover the case. So if there's a creator you'd like to see cover your person's case, find their contact form, be extremely polite, send them something brief, but eye catching and just keep at it. It's a numbers game. If you submit to 500 people, I guarantee someone's going to interview you. It's all about odds. Um, so yeah, always be polite, know your stuff and just work your tail off. So much of this was really just hard work. The amount of hours I spent sending these emails, having these calls and just communicating with people to get these interviews um, is huge. You know, overall, I know this isn't directly related to, you know, getting the media exposure, but I always tell people like, be kind to yourself. If, if you need to take a day, take a day. Don't push yourself like crazy. Forgive yourself and um, just do what you can when you can. But yeah, that, that'd be my best advice. Awesome. That's amazing advice. Yeah. It takes a long time to get hardened, you know, like I kind of am. I, mm-hmm. I wish I could say I'm not hardened, but I definitely am. It it took years and years of doing interviews to be able to be comfortable enough to do, you know, a few a day or whatever. In the beginning, I would do one interview and I would need to take two or three days to recover just to chill out, let my mind clear. And the more you do, the easier it gets. Um, so if you find yourself wanting to take three days to recover in the beginning, let yourself take three days to recover. It, it will get easier. That makes a lot of sense. Because it's highly emotional. Yeah. Well, not everyone's this way. But for me, I feel like it's an active form of grieving. I'm not saying don't have your your time and be sad about it. I'm just saying for me, it makes me feel better when I fight for her. It makes me feel so much better than sitting there being sad about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you would like to let everybody know where to find the podcast and reach you if they would like to, all of that good stuff, we'll go ahead and close out. You can find Voices for Justice everywhere you find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, everywhere in between. And the best way to contact me is via email. I have a contact form or my email is right on there. Um, So yeah, reach out, listen to the podcast and follow me. I'm on every social media. If you want to check out the TikToks, that's under um, Sarah E. Turney. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you. Of course. Thank you, guys. We hope you guys enjoyed the conversation we had with Sarah. If you'd like to check out her podcast, Voices for Justice, her website, or write down any of her contact information, that'll all be in the show notes for you. And with that, we'll go ahead and catch you back here on Monday for another regular episode. So we'll see you then. Bye, guys. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.